Well, good morning. I'm the new guy on staff. (laughs) It's good to be back with you after my August sabbatical. I thank you for your prayers. God answered prayer. It was not only a time of spiritual refreshment on a personal level, but also a time of discerning. And I'll be sharing what I discern God saying the last weekend of this month. That's when we'll be electing our church leaders for the new year ahead, and it's an appropriate time for me to share what I believe God is saying to us at this point in our history as a congregation. Today we have a great privilege. We have the privilege of studying together the most relevant book in the world, God's eternal, unchanging truth. It's relevant because it diagnoses every evil that plagues the human spirit and poisons human society. And it doesn't stop with diagnosis. It also offers cure. And the passage that we're going to consider today is a prime example of that, though written nearly 2,000 years ago. It speaks clearly and prophetically to something that is currently tearing the fabric of human society and American society. And I'm talking about the evil that we know as prejudice. An attitude of superiority, fear, disdain, and distrust based primarily on ethnic and cultural differences. Its cost to the world of humanity is staggering. It sets nations, people groups, and communities against one another in a dance of death in which there are no winners, only losers. It robs the world's young people, many of them, of their dreams and their dignity and their futures. It dehumanizes those who are hated and those who are doing the hating. And it leaves the human heart hollow and degraded. And sadly, it can and often has and often does poison God's church. And that's where our study of the ancient book of Acts this year can help us. Our text today comes from a sermon that Paul delivered on Mars Hill in the city of Athens. He was speaking to a smug and very prejudiced audience. They thought they were a cut above all the rest of humanity. And in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 26, here's what he said as he stood before them. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and habitations, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. Now Paul wasn't being original. He was echoing something that God had said many centuries earlier through the prophet Malachi. In Malachi 2.10, that prophet declared, Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Today we're going to learn of how the Holy Spirit combats prejudice in the world and in the church 
So I've chosen as my title, Spirit and Prejudice. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, you have given me a task that I could never carry out on my own. Apart from you, I can do nothing. So, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would enable me to preach your word prophetically and accurately. I pray that you would help us to understand it fully and apply it faithfully. We pray this for the honor of Christ in his church and for the sake of our mission in the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, if you've even thought of it in these terms, but where the Holy Spirit's work is concerned, we tend to romanticize it. Let me explain. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the Comforter. And so I think we tend to assume that if the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, that's going to be a comforting experience and a comforting experience process. But the book of Acts reminds us that the Holy Spirit often leads us to hard places where we initially don't wish to go. The Holy Spirit brings comfort, but it often lies on the backside of a whole lot of discomfort. I learned that on a personal level early on in pastoral ministry. And my observations have convinced me that that dynamic explains why so many of Jesus' followers struggle to consistently walk in the Spirit. They attempt to do so with the wrong expectations. They expect the Holy Spirit is going to provide comfortable affirmation, when in reality, the Holy Spirit brings very uncomfortable transformation. And after 40 years of pastoral experience, I'm convinced a lot of people come to church to be affirmed rather than to be transformed. And if the message doesn't suit their liking, they move on somewhere else. But you see, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste his time on fool's errands. He knows that the path to holiness inevitably has to lead through some very uncomfortable places, places of unflattering self-awareness, places of judgment day honesty, places of true confession of sin. And the earliest disciples discovered that as the Holy Spirit led them on a bumpy an often extremely uncomfortable journey out of their deep-seated ethnic and cultural prejudice and into the love of God. It's one of the most basic themes in the book of Acts, though most theologians overlook it. That journey was necessary even though they were saved men and women who had been born again by the miraculous work of God's Spirit. It was necessary because as all of us discover very quickly, the new birth 
Salvation is not the end of the process, it's the beginning of the process. When we step across the threshold of faith into the kingdom of God, we bring a lot of our old junk with us. We need a lot of work. That's why much of the New Testament is given to appeals that say, put off the old things and put on the new things. So it should come as no surprise that prejudice, which is one of the old things, is often found in Jesus' disciples. Not just in the first century, but in the 21st century. And history bears that out. To deny it is to be intellectually dishonest. You can't make it go away through spin. In fact, history bears vivid testimony of the fact that sometimes believers have used Scripture and their faith to undergird and affirm their prejudice. And when God's people allow prejudice to set their agenda, that poses a spiritual problem. Because until prejudice is confessed and abandoned, it severely limits the Spirit's work and our witness. It limits what God wants to do to liberate our hearts, and it limits what God wants to do through us to liberate others. And that's why relentlessly throughout the book of Acts, you find the Holy Spirit confronting prejudice. And I want you to note, as we review that process, that he started with very small steps. I'm so thankful God doesn't ask us to move from square one to square ten overnight. Because most of us struggle to move from square one to square (laughs) one point one. And God knows that. He knows that growth is a daily process. Many times it goes along slowly, almost imperceptibly, but God's got all of eternity, so he's patient. And so he started small with that early church. He started on the day of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came in fulfillment of prophecy, those Jewish initial disciples were able to miraculously declare the works of God in a multitude of human languages they had never studied and never learned. And it was for the benefit of Jewish pilgrims from all around the world who had come into Jerusalem for Pentecost. Each one heard of the works of God in his or her native dialect. And so right away, the Holy Spirit made it clear that the work of God and the kingdom of God wouldn't be limited to those who speak Hebrew. He confronted linguistic prejudice, which is a very, very real thing. That was a small step. The next small step, he led Peter to declare, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, we know Peter didn't mean everyone. He meant every Jewish person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved because it wouldn't be till some time later that he would reluctantly accept the fact that Gentiles were going to be a part of God's kingdom. But even in saying every Jewish person that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Peter was confronting 
prejudice because even within our own ethnicity, even within our own cultures, we tend to look at some people as if they aren't candidates for God's blessing and others as if they're prime candidates for God's blessing. It was another small step. Then he led the Jerusalem church to appoint Greek-speaking disciples as the first deacons of the church. That was another small but significant step because it's one thing to overcome prejudice to the point where you fellowship with people different than you. It's another to put yourself under the leadership of somebody different than you. That's a whole other story, and a lot of people don't want to go there. Then the Holy Spirit picked up the pace. He kicked it into high gear because he sent Philip to preach to Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans, probably more than they hated Gentiles because they saw them as former brothers and sisters who had gone bad. And then to put a cherry on top of the whipped cream, when Philip was done preaching to the Samaritans, God sent him down into the desert to preach to an Ethiopian diplomat. Now those are bigger steps. Then he confronted Peter with a vision involving a sheet and various forms of wildlife, and he led a reluctant Peter to understand the gospel is going to, the kingdom is going to include Gentiles, including the Romans who conquered you, subdued you, taxed you, and even now persecute you. Yes, Peter, you've got to love Romans. They're got to be your brothers and sisters. That was a monumental leap. And in the aftermath, Peter made this observation. In truth, I perceive, this is a classic understatement, that God shows no partiality. But the Spirit wasn't finished. Because when prejudice can't be open, it usually goes underground. Have you noticed that? If it can't be overt, it hides in the shadows. And in the case of the church, it'll hide behind Scripture and devotion. So these early Jewish believers had been brought to the point where they accepted Gentiles are going to be our brothers and sisters. But what did they attempt to do? They attempted to make them Jewish. Okay, Lord, we'll accept the Gentiles, but hey, Gentiles, you've got to become Jewish. You've got to be circumcised. I bet that went over real well, <laughs> especially to adult believers. <laughs> and you've got to observe the feasts, and you've got to observe the ceremonies, and you essentially have to become Jewish. See, when you say, I'm willing to be with other people if they become like me, that's prejudice. That's the insidious prejudice. Thankfully, the Spirit wouldn't have it. And at the Jerusalem Council, he led the church to abandon that path and to make disciples of Christ rather than clones of Jews. Now, with all of that already having happened, 
Paul took God's message to a group of people who were strung out on the crack of prejudice. He took the gospel to Athens. And to understand the scandalous nature of Paul's teaching, you have to first understand Greek prejudice at that time. The Greeks firmly believed they were superior to all other people. They referred to all the non-Greeks in the world as barbarians. Whether they were Romans or Phoenicians or Jewish, didn't matter. If you weren't Greek, you were a barbarian. And the Athenians were the most arrogant of the lot because within Greek culture, they believed they were descended from the purest strains of the Greek people. So they were the best of the best. So Paul stands up in front of them, and in his introduction, he boldly declares, there is only one human race, we are all made by one God, and we are all descended from one man. Remember, they thought they were descended from the best of the best. You see, if you don't know the context, you fail to understand Paul didn't start nice and then save the hard stuff for later. He started hard. He ghetto slapped their pride. And, and, and as soon as he spoke those words, I bet some people got flush in the face. Others stiffened. Some probably looked at one another and said, you believe this clown? In one simple sentence, Paul outed the absurdity of racism and ethnic superiority. And I like to think when he finished that message, he dropped the mic. Because <laughs> that was a mic drop moment if ever there was one. Paul said all humanity traces back to one man. It would await my lifetime for Time magazine to report in a cover story that science and geneticists had determined that we are all descended from one woman. See, science always arrives late to the party. Moses had come and gone a couple thousand years earlier. That's why I can't understand believers who are intimidated by those who use science as a tool of unbelief. Given enough time, science might arrive at truth. All descended from one woman. What science has not yet acknowledged, and probably will not, is that that one woman was formed out of the first man. Taken out of Adam, not so that God could show he understood cloning and DNA long before we did, but out of necessity. Because Jesus was planned as the substitute and savior for the human race. But that plan would only work if there was one human race and Jesus was a part of it. 
If Eve had been a separate creation, by the time Jesus came, there would have been a plethora of races, none of them genetically connected. But because he took her out of Adam, there is only one human race. And Paul, even though Paul didn't understand genetics and DNA, said we have all come out of one man. And because of that, Jesus could be the one savior of that one race. That's why I personally don't like the terms race and racism, because they reinforce false notions. There is only one human race. Within it, there are adaptations of pigment and facial features and biological structure, but those are cosmetic differences within the one human race. We all hail from one dude. And Paul's declaration makes something else abundantly clear. God has no favorites. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All people are created in God's image. All people are equally valued to God. And God passionately desires that all people everywhere would be liberated and redeemed. It was this biblical doctrine that informed and emboldened Dr. King in his fight against prejudice within this nation. It led him to say the Christian gospel is fundamentally incompatible, incompatible with racial prejudice. You can't practice the gospel and prejudice simultaneously. Doing so doesn't mean you're not a believer, but it does mean you're a disobedient believer. And you're a spirit-grieving believer. And you're limiting his work in you and in the church. Those who embrace the gospel must embrace all of the gospel and must thereby resist and attack prejudice wherever they find it in their own heart, in their church, in their community, and in their nation. But newsflash, attacking prejudice doesn't always get you applause. Because when you attack prejudice, you're tinkering with people's idols. And people don't like it when you mess with their idols. So Paul's time in Athens wasn't a great success. Many suggest that his listeners, who eventually laughed at him and walked away and said, later, walked out and laughed because of the resurrection. That's generally what biblical scholars say. They were okay till he got to the resurrection, and then they thought, oh, no, no, no. I think he lost them at one man. Remember who they were, arrogant and prejudiced. He lost them at one man. Whatever he said after that wasn't going to stick. And the fact that the resurrection insults human arrogance doesn't change the fact that he lost them at one man. So there were only a handful that believed and followed Christ in Athens. And it reminds us yet again that not only does God look upon our prejudice, but God himself experiences prejudice. The truth is, no one has suffered as much blind prejudice 
as God himself. He is constantly rejected, not on the basis of who he is, but on people's preconceived notions of who he is and what he is like. And prejudice against God is on a sharp incline in our culture. Paul's inspired declaration is essential for the war against prejudice. And God has called us at ACAC to be active combatants in that conflict. So in closing, let me share some intentional behaviors that will help you to resist and combat prejudice wherever you find it, in your heart, in your church, in your community. And I want to leave you with some practical steps because you can't obey God in theory. You have to obey God in practice. So here they are. First, remember, the battle against prejudice is a spiritual battle, and that calls for spiritual weapons. It won't be won with scathing diatribes on social media, verbal grenades hurled back and forth across the trenches of hatred, violent protests that just beget even more violence, and snarky name-calling. When you attempt to do God's work with the devil's tools, you end up doing the devil's work. You cannot do God's work with the devil's tools. Second, remember, when our faith makes us feel we're better than someone else, that feeling comes from the devil, not from God. The only difference between me and whoever would be the worst corrupt morally perverted person in the world, the only difference between them and me is Jesus. Without Jesus, I could have become anything. And the same holds for you. See, where the Holy Spirit is at work, he births humility, not smugness. Third, seek to emulate Jesus' treatment of others. The Bible says, be like Christ. He extended God's love to Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, male and female, sinners and saints, children and adults. And he drafted all who would into his kingdom. Fourth, this is important, ask the Spirit to reveal your heart. We have all been tainted by prejudice to some degree because we've all been tainted by sin. And it usually hides quietly in our spirits, hoping we won't detect it. So we all need to pray with David. Search me, O God. Try me and see if there be any wicked way within me. Lord, I'm sure there's stuff in me I'm not aware of. Show it to me. Fifth, don't return evil for evil. Because when you do that, you just add to the already considerable momentum of evil in this world. God's looking for people to add momentum to righteousness in this world. You do that by loving your enemies and doing good to those who treat you like garbage. Those passages have not been cut out of the Bible. And God didn't remove them before or after the last election. Though some people act like they're no longer there. Sixth, intentionally seek relationships with those of other ethnicities. 
and we could add cultures. Because distance and isolation are fertile soil for prejudice. When you only hang with people like yourself, you insulate your heart and you blind your eyes. You never see people who are different than you as they really are. You only see them through your preconceived, uninformed notions of who they are. It is so important to have close friends from other ethnic and cultural groups because that's when God can begin to erode your stereotypes and your sweeping statements about them. Seventh, when you relate to those who are different than you, listen. Listen to understand and learn rather than talking to lecture and defend. And finally, realize that some will not welcome your efforts, but Jesus will bless them. Some people don't appreciate what God has called us to do here. In the months leading up to and immediately following the last presidential election, we saw a number of people walk away from ACAC. And it reminded me again that a lot of times people don't come to church to be transformed or even biblically informed. They come to have their politics affirmed. They want to be told that their way is the way of God, that they are on the side of the angels. Never mind that both major political parties have vast elements of the demonic within their platforms. Some expressed their disgust and anger at us not advocating for one side or the other. Others interpreted our October missions emphasis when we talked about loving and ministering to immigrants as a political statement. No, it was a biblical statement. And if a biblical statement insults your political position, your political position is probably based more on sin than on Scripture. So some have left us. And while I never cherish that, you can't please everybody. There's only one person the church is to please, and that's Jesus. And let all other opinions be gone. See, one of the reasons the American church has lost much of its credibility is because it has shacked up with politics far too long. And now in a bitterly politically divided culture, there are many people who will not even listen to the first word of the gospel because they think you're just representing an opposing politic. That's tragic. That's what happens when God's people don't listen to the Spirit. So not all will welcome our efforts, (laughs) but Jesus will bless them. And at the judgment seat... His is the only opinion that counts. Prejudice isn't going to die with my generation or the Xer generation or the millennial generation or any generation because prejudice doesn't die with generations. It goes away when God's people die to self and live to Christ. 
It's not enough to tear down statues. God's people have to allow the Spirit to tear down every lofty thought that exalts itself against the agenda and the knowledge of God, including the ones we discover hiding within ourselves. If we're willing to take that journey, the Holy Spirit will graciously, patiently, and skillfully lead the way. And I want to be on that journey. I don't want to be part of a politicized, prejudiced church that bows its knee to the idols of American culture. I want to be part of a church that is prophetic, that speaks truth to power, that confronts idolatry. And you can't be prejudiced and prophetic at the same time. So let's pray that the Spirit will patiently lead us just as he led Peter and Paul and Barnabas and others out of fear and hatred and into the love of God. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you've heard our topic and you've heard my conclusion. Now I pray that you would help us to be a prophetic community that refuses to compromise with evil, that refuses to bow to idols, and that offers a prejudiced world a powerful alternative. Let the work begin in us where it always has to begin so that it might extend out from us into our world. We're not going to see everybody come into the kingdom, but we want to see as many as possible. Let it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.